Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Many rural hospitals are having their worst financial year in decades. A new federal designation could be a lifeline. We'll hear more about it. Also, a healthcare group is trying a new approach to deal with the rise in RSV cases. Jesse White's time in office is about to end. The longtime Illinois Secretary of State chose not to seek another term. We'll look back at his career. Also, we continue our focus on the freshman year of high school. Some call it the most pivotal year for students. We hear how some school districts are using that year to make sure students stay on track toward graduation. An Illinois high school senior scored a perfect ACT score. We'll talk with him and his family about that achievement. And we'll learn about an app that lets students seek help before harm. That's coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. You may know Secretary of State Jesse White because his name's on your driver's license. Or maybe you've seen the tumbling team that bears his name. But as Dave McKinney reports, there's a lot more to White's legendary political career as it comes to an end. The 88-year-old Chicago Democrat is leaving office in January after serving 24 years as Secretary of State, the longest anyone's been in that role and the first African-American to hold the office. But he had another line of work before he got into Illinois politics. In the early 1960s, White played in the Chicago Cubs farm system. He could swing the bat, and he had a knack for stealing bases. In 1963, White was confronted by a team pitching coach after being spotted in a diner with a female reporter interested in his promising baseball career and work in Chicago's inner city. He said, uh, you were having lunch with a white woman. I said, that was a reporter. No, don't BS me. No, that was your girlfriend. That coach told White he had been on a short list to be called up to the Cubs, but after seeing the two together, not anymore. It was a decision White said dripped of bigotry. As it turned out, I never got a chance to make the majors. Tom Ricketts, the current Cubs owner, tells WBEZ he'd never heard that story before from White and says he's saddened by his organization's past racism. Ricketts says he now admires White even more and considers him, quote, a Cub for life. On the field, White was heckled for the color of his skin in Texas and got into a fistfight with a man unhappy he was eating with other teammates in a Minnesota restaurant. And as Secretary of State, White and his tumbling team were pelted by debris from racist revelers in the Southside Irish Parade, prompting him never to partake in the event again. And yet, he never felt anger or distrust for white people. I don't dislike anyone because of how they came into this world. It's a philosophy that helped make him one of Illinois' most popular and enduring political figures. He's held office since Richard J. Daley was Chicago's mayor, from Illinois lawmaker to secretary of state. In six statewide campaigns, White was the top vote-getter four times, once winning every Illinois county. That's something no governor has achieved in at least 100 years. Not even Barack Obama did that. Democratic Senator Dick Durbin shared the statewide ballot twice with White, and both times got fewer votes. You have to wonder in in this time of political division how one man can be so universally loved and respected as Jesse White is. But in 1998, White didn't start out getting that love and respect that he now has. Then-powerful House Speaker Michael Madigan double-crossed him. 
The ex-speaker told White that he wanted a downstate Democrat to be Secretary of State, not someone from Cook County. But White later learned Madigan, in fact, was helping someone else from Cook County. White wound up winning the primary anyway and moved on to defeat Republican Al Salvi that fall. Salvi remembers how difficult it was to attack White because of his charitable work with his tumbling team. White also had the political sense not to attack GOP gubernatorial nominee George Ryan for a corruption scandal inside Ryan's Secretary of State office. But Salvi did, and it helped White as mainstream Republicans bailed on Salvi. I was getting hit for for calling out corruption, and Jesse was uh, getting George Ryan's endorsement. Uh, That was really tough. Today, Salvi considers White a friend and says he's been a good secretary of state. I think Jesse White is sort of a model of what both parties uh, should aspire to. During his tenure, White championed tougher licensing requirements for teen drivers, more restrictive seatbelt laws, and organ donations. And he's avoided allegations of corruption. But his legacy extends beyond that. More than 18,000 kids came up through his Jesse White tumbling team during the past 63 years, sometimes coming from impoverished or single-parent homes. Angela Spears is one of them. She was raised by her mom in the southwest suburbs and joined the Tumblers in the early 2000s. She's now a lawyer and views White as a father figure whose mantra, doing something good for someone every day, shaped her life. As an attorney, it is something that I've really instilled in my own practice, and it's how I live my life. White says for all he's accomplished and endured, he wants to be remembered as someone who helped people and who believed in good government. This is Dave McKinney. Educators say freshman year of high school is the most crucial year of education. It can make or break a student's chance at graduating. Last week, Peter Medlin looked at how a small district, Oregon, helped at-risk freshmen get on track to graduate. This week, he reports on how large districts are trying to boost their graduation rates, starting with the freshman year. Morgan Gallagher is Rockford Public Schools' chief of schools. RPS is the state's third largest district. Gallagher's been thinking about getting freshmen on track for over a decade, back to his time as an assistant principal at freshman academies in Chicago Public Schools. Just as Oregon was starting its freshman program, Hawks Take Flight, in 2007, the first research on how to keep freshmen on track was emerging from the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research, and it was soon implemented to success across Chicago. Being on track just means that a student earned five full-year course credits and failed no more than one semester of a core class. And Gallagher says his bosses in Chicago told him in their first meeting that if he didn't get their on-track percentage up, Don't expect to have a job next year. I inherited a freshman on track the year prior that was 49%. So a majority of kids were off track. And we grew that to 92%. So when he became chief of schools in Rockford last year, he said his big priority and how he sold himself into the gig was improving freshmen on track. He says there have been two prongs to its approach, data and a sense of belonging. Now, what that specifically looks like is different depending on the school. Some put freshman math classrooms right next to each other so teachers could more easily collaborate and identify trends. Auburn High School invested in parent community liaisons. And all of the schools have given teachers access to student grades in every class so they know if students are only struggling in their subject or not. And Gallagher has tried to emphasize that Rising tides lift all boats. The more students are supported and succeeding academically and emotionally, the fewer students are disengaged in class. 
In the past few years, Rockford has been making progress. Their freshman on track rate was 63% in 2019, and that steadily increased to 75% this year. Unfortunately, that's still well below state average. He says they're getting more and more staff buy-in as the data bears out that these strategies are actually working and that they're working for the students who need the help the most. Black students still lag behind with freshmen on track. 64% of black Rockford freshmen were on track last year, but that is a 9% jump from 2021. And if Rockford wants to bring up its dismally low graduation rate, Gallagher says it starts with freshman year, and he says they've even been able to get hyper-specific about when during their freshman year that students struggle the most. You see the biggest drop-off in on-track the first three weeks of second semester, and that's like across almost any high schools in Illinois, you would see this trend line where you finish out your first semester strong, we finished it out at 81%, but then three to four weeks into second semester, it drops down below 60%, like a 20% drop in on track that first three weeks of second semester. He says teachers usually gently ease students into the school year, so if they have a lot of trouble at the beginning of the year, it's likely because of an issue with feeling like they belong. But with the second semester, after a long break, they often jump into new classes at full speed. Think about all the time and money and energy invested in our kids, pre-K, getting all the way up to ninth grade, all those years. And then within just a matter of three weeks, we potentially lose 20% of our kids. So far, Gallagher says the freshman on track rate is up another 2% year over year. But crunch time is coming up. The second semester is coming soon, where so many students fall into a hole it's hard to climb out of to graduate on time. But he hopes this year they have the staff and the resources in place to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm Peter Medlin. Western Illinois University is making a change to its cost guarantee program. Rich Egger brings us that report. Western created the program in 1999. It ensured that undergraduate students paid the same rate for tuition, fees, room and board, and their meal plan for four years of continuous enrollment. The tuition guarantee remains in place, but the university is dropping the other guarantees for new students starting next fall. Board of Trustees member Greg Aguilar says this will provide Western with more financial flexibility. We're just seeing how much everything increases in price, and so it's like I would love to be paying what I was paying four years ago for my groceries. Western's cost guarantee program was the first such program in Illinois. For many years, it was the only university in the state to make such an offer. The state later created the Illinois Tuition Guarantee Program based on Western's model, but WIU remained the only university in the state that locked in the cost beyond tuition. Rich Egger reporting. The passage of the Endangered Species Act of 1973 was a pivotal moment in conservation history. Researchers and legal authorities have since called it the most comprehensive piece of legislation aimed at preserving jeopardized species in world history. 
Despite the act's successes, threats to the natural world remain. Now there's a bipartisan bill in Congress that could significantly accelerate conservation efforts nationwide. Lindsay Jones takes a look at the proposed Restoring America's Wildlife Act and what it would mean for Illinois. According to the National Wildlife Foundation, about a third of all wildlife species in the U.S. are at a heightened risk of extinction. And conservationists estimate there are more than 12,000 species altogether in need of greater conservation efforts. As it's written, the Endangered Species Act directs its protective efforts to those species that are on the brink of total extinction. But as environmental advocates say, beyond those that are the most endangered, there are many more that continue to decline in population, like the monarch butterfly, the alligator snapping turtle, and bat populations that have been decimated by illnesses. Here's John Rogner, the assistant director of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. A lot of these are, are, are things that um, people don't regularly take note of, but they're out there on the landscape and they're, they're part of the land, and it's our responsibility to take care of them. Rogner is one of many environmental leaders across the state and country who say they're waiting anxiously to see if this Congress will pass the largest piece of conservation legislation in nearly half a century. This is truly unprecedented, and uh, we, we tend to call it a game changer for us here at Illinois DNR. The proposed act is called the Restoring America's Wildlife Act. Unlike many pieces of legislation, this one actually has bipartisan support, with sponsors and supporters coming from both sides of the aisle. RAWA, as it's termed, would provide $1.4 billion in federal funding each year to help restore wildlife across the country. Rogner says right now the majority of state-led conservation efforts are funded through the sales of licenses during hunting and fishing season. That includes in Illinois. It's largely the, the state's sportsmen and sportswomen through acquiring hunting and fishing licenses and stamps and so forth. They've been carrying the freight for us, so to speak. But there's a need for more, especially as the number of regular hunters or fishers has declined overall in the U.S., according to experts. That's where RAWA comes in. Here's Ashley Maybanks of the Illinois Chapter of the Nature Conservancy, a nonprofit organization that works closely with IDNR. While that funding model has worked really well for a long time, we are currently experiencing a really rapid rate of biodiversity loss, and so we feel that this funding would add additional resources to those species that are more at risk, so endangered and threatened species. If RAWA were to pass, each state and tribal nation in the country would receive an annual appropriation that supplements the revenue it takes in from things like license sales. Here's IDNR's Rogner again. We would receive about 24 to 25 million uh, in new funds uh, on an annual basis. This would be every year. Illinois Environmental Council Outreach Director Lindsey Keeney says that organization, too, is eager for the bill to pass. Keeney says the multi-million dollar allocation to the state has the chance to undo the effects of years of underfunding state agencies, including IDNR. Our agencies have sort of just clawed their way out of that whole um, budget deficit, low staffing capacity, and they're building that staffing back up to baseline. They have been well below baseline for the last 10 years. Additional funding would be a good thing, but Keeney says it will also present its own challenges. Implementing such a huge opportunity is going to be a big challenge, and it's going to require a lot of coordination um, between varying levels of 
policymakers and decision makers. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources would likely need its own additional workers, Assistant John Rogner says. And because the agency does contract out some services, it would also need a bigger pool to pull workers from. In other words, Rawa could be a job creator. You know, when we talk about, talk about restoring habitat, when we talk about managing habitat, that takes people to do that. To some extent, that would be within DNR, but we use a lot of contractors to do that kind of work, too. Aside from the job creation aspect, advocates say this work matters for everyone, regardless of whether you get outdoors much or not. Here's National Wildlife Foundation CEO Colin O'Mara. Places that have healthier wetlands or restored prairies uh, have less flooding because you have, you know, more uh, kind of natural sponges to, to both slow down the, the velocity and also reduce the volume of water that's, you know, flooding during these flash flooding events. O'Mara says if Rawa does get to the finish line, it would surpass the 1973 Endangered Species Act as the largest legislative conservation effort ever passed. In some ways, it's been almost 50 years in the making. There was a big debate back in the 1970s when the Endangered Species Act was being written about having more funding to bring back species, and it didn't end up making the final bill. And so, you know, we kind of got three weeks to, to make progress on something that's been, you know, over a half century of, uh, of effort to, to try to get to this point. O'Mara says of the legislators backing this effort, Illinois U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth was, quote, hugely helpful. The bill still awaits a vote in the Senate. It previously passed the House. I'm Lindsay Jones. Just ahead, the challenges for rural hospitals. That and more coming up on Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. In the past decade, more than 130 rural hospitals have closed, and dozens of those were in the Midwest. The pandemic has created even more financial challenges for rural hospitals, meaning the trend could get worse. Lawmakers say a new federal designation could be a lifeline for rural hospitals, but others aren't so sure. Side Effects Public Media's Natalie Krebs reports. Things have been anything but easy for Crawford County Memorial Hospital at this point in the pandemic. So our expenses are through the roof right now, but our revenues are not going up. That's Erin Muck. She's the CEO of the Rural Public Hospital in Denison that serves the western Iowa County of about 16,000. She says the reason for this financial squeeze is not just one thing, it's everything. Federal CARES Act funding, which helped pad the hospital's budget during the pandemic, ended in August. On top of that, Muck says they're facing budgeting challenges from inflation, bad debt from uninsured patients, and are still relying on traveling nurses to cover staffing shortages from COVID burnout. We're having to pay more for our employees than we've ever had to pay for before. You know, we were all fighting over nurses at one point. These problems are hardly unique to Crawford County Memorial. Many rural hospitals are on track to experience their worst financial year in decades, and about 30 percent are at risk of closing in the immediate or near future. That's according to a recent report from the think tank Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. This is where the newly created federal rural emergency hospital licensure designation comes in. It's set to go into effect on January 1st. It's aimed at saving rural hospitals that are really struggling on the brink of closure. It would allow them to end all inpatient care and operate just as an emergency room without patient services, along with other benefits like higher reimbursements. National hospital groups support the designation, and so does the Iowa Hospital Association. Chris Mitchell is the organization's president and CEO. It's fine to talk about these things in the abstract, but when you go to each individual community, uh, the loss of the hospital 
could potentially be devastating for that community. However, some rural hospitals like Crawford County Memorial say they aren't considering applying for it and have many concerns about the way it could affect rural care. Baby just got born. That's Don Lindsman, Crawford County Memorial's marketing director, on a recent tour through the obstetrics unit. He says they deliver around 100 babies a year. Inpatient care accounts for just 10% of the hospital's services, but is an important 10%, says CEO Aaron Muck. Becoming a rural emergency hospital would mean losing these labor and delivery services and other important care. Let's say I'm a 80-year-old lady and I have pneumonia and I require hospitalization, I would have to go to a hospital further away just to be hospitalized for my pneumonia. Experts are also wary. George Pink is with the North Carolina Rural Health Research Program. He says it might provide a band-aid fix to prevent hospitals from closing, but doesn't seem likely to address the many underlying issues. Unless this viable long-term financial model is there, uh, I don't think there's going to be many hospitals to pick to, to take up on this. However, there's a possibility the designation could have already saved at least one rural hospital. Blessing Help acquired a 49-bed facility in eastern Iowa last year. The hospital had long been struggling financially, and Administrator Kathy Hall says they plan to apply for the federal designation. We actually had a scenario planned that we felt like we could get break-even or even make a little bit. But finalization for the rural emergency hospital designation didn't come fast enough for Blessing Health Keokuk. The hospital closed in October, marking the first hospital closure Iowa has seen in more than two decades. Natalie Krebs, Side Effects Public Media. That story comes from a collaboration between Iowa Public Radio, the Midwest Newsroom, and Side Effects Public Media. RSV season is hitting earlier than usual this year. Coupled with a wave of influenza cases, hospitals have been left struggling to manage limited bed space. OSF Healthcare is launching a remote patient monitoring program for people with RSV, similar to the model the hospital system leveraged during the COVID-19 pandemic. In an interview with Tim Shelley, OSF Healthcare Chief Operating Officer Dr. Mike Cruz and the OSF On-Call Digital Health Chief Medical Officer Dr. Matt Gorman discussed the current respiratory illness environments and how the new RSV monitoring program helps patients manage illness at home. The operating units are, have been full um, for some time. This RSV season has hit earlier than typical, although uh, we typically see this later in the year. Uh, it has hit uh, the vulnerable uh, akin to influenza, which seems to be the extremes of ages, but traditionally this is a, this is a young child's illness. So young to three to five is not unusual. 10-year-olds get it too, but you know, it, they just don't get as sick or you know, adolescents and even adults. So the hospitals, uh, and, and it's not secret to, to Illinois, the bordering institutions, especially in the pediatrics, uh, the demand, uh, we can tell we are we're at full capacity, uh, beds and staff. We're seeing children who are being brought, uh, being requested to be transferred in from spaces we no, normally don't transfer kids in from, which means you know Iowa, St. Louis, Chicago, uh, Indiana, Indianapolis, which have children's hospitals as well uh, that take care of these really um, sick children as well. So they're overwhelmed. So what's happening current state is. You know, how do we take care of children outside of the traditional space? 
uh, when there's not enough room, so a certain amount of tri triaging. And Dr. Gorman, uh, looking at on-call's role in all of this, uh, obviously the goal is to you know try to make sure people are getting the help they need while also managing the hospital capacity. Tell me a little bit about on-call's role in that. Um, on-call's role is really to um, try and decrease the burden being put on the emergency department of having uh, patients that are fairly well um, in the ambulatory context or being at home and being able to care for uh, those patients that are well enough to be safely at home and reassure parents and give them some confidence that they can safely uh, care for their um, either infant um, or we go all the way up to five um, because that's kind of seen this where the cutoff is in terms of where RSV has kind of the, the larger predictors similar to, to influenza as well. And I know on-call was really active during the, the absolute peak of the COVID pandemic. Uh, how much did you really hone your model during that and how do some of the lessons you learned then apply now perhaps? Yeah, the lessons we learned um, tremendously helped us spin up this program uh, rather rapidly and learn how to scale up on a, on a significant com component. It also gained some uh, comfort in caring for patients remotely on what we can do safely at the home and then also create an escalation process for those patients that are not doing well and need more urgent care um, and getting them into the access points that they probably will do the best in terms of also trying to decrease the burden on the healthcare system, which is kind of fragile right now. So with all of that being said, uh, if, you know, RSV cases are bad now, are you worried about the impact the holidays could potentially have? I, I think we're worried. Um, I think we're trying to put other things in place as well. Um, but I mean, no one has the crystal ball of what it's going to look like. I mean, flu, I think, is going to peak right now and then probably will take a little bit of lull um, the holidays, and then probably right after the holidays, you'll start seeing flu normally pick up again. Um, usually the younger kids get it and then kind of spread it to the adults, and then it gets back in the community. So you kind of see it, you know, during Thanksgiving, and then it kind of goes through the schools, and then you start seeing it on Christmas break as they're out. Um, and so I, we are concerned that it is going to increase, and so this is where our program is is trying to help kind of curb um, those that are well, keeping them in an environment that where they're not having to in you know take an, a bed or take um, a room from another patient that's sicker. Absolutely. I mean, going forward, as you know, as we look into the future, is on call. I mean, are there plans to expand this to you know deal with potentially other illnesses, uh, really to to help manage hospital capacity? This program is really narrowly focused to uh, respiratory illnesses. I think that we're looking at expanding this to kind of bronchiolitis, which could be viral driven from influenza or assorted of other viruses that are treated similar to RSV. Um, and so we, we looked at we might expand that, but currently we're focusing primarily on RSV, but it is open for expansion. And there are other things that we're doing um, in terms of the pediatric, because this is our first foray into um, pediatric remote patient monitoring. That's OSF Healthcare's Dr. Matt Gorman and Dr. Mike Cruz, and they spoke with Tim Shelley about a new remote patient monitoring program the health system launched for RSV. The program is free, but it does require a provider referral. Members of the Southern Illinois AIDS Coalition are in the midst of a holiday drive to provide families that have at least one member who has HIV with toys, clothing, and groceries, or a gift card for food. Maureen McKinney spoke with Wally Painter of Carmi's, the chairman of the coalition. We're trying to help the low-income households with at least one person with HIV or AIDS in the household. 
in the 19 southernmost counties just to get them some basic clothes, toys, food, etc. We've helped thousands of people you know, throughout the years just with an all-volunteer effort and their households that are dealing with disability, poverty, and stigma here in rural Illinois. You know, and a lot of people live and want to be anonymous about their HIV status. So we're just trying to roll up our sleeves and help them. You know, and the requests we get, because we send each family a request form, you know, it's basically for toys, basic clothing like jeans and other items, you know, that will give these families a boost, along with a basket of non-perishable food and hopefully a grocery store gift card as well. You know, and a lot of times it's not the people you expect. You know, it could be two people that are still working, but trying to make ends meet with kids. It could be people that aren't working anymore. You know, if the mom is HIV positive, that could also mean that the child is HIV positive as well. You know, and it's people living in rural communities, you know, like Carmi, like Harrisburg, Anna, Illinois, you know, people that are just trying to live their lives quietly and people don't realize what disability, you know, that they are dealing with. Southern Illinois is a rough place to live with HIV and AIDS, you know, because people have to travel to go see a doctor. You know, they have to travel to go see a caseworker. You know, and it's not, it's not an easy place. How can people support the project? A lot of times on social media is the easiest way to find out more information about our project. You know, it's the Southern Illinois AIDS Coalition on Facebook. People can make donations online, or they can mail a check. People can sponsor families in a couple different ways. We can send them a wish list with clothing sizes, or they can make a donation, and we have volunteers that are willing to do the shopping for the families. You know, but we still have quite a few households and quite a few individuals that still need sponsored. So we really need a boost right now just to make sure that this project is a success. Wally Painter is chairman of the Southern Illinois AIDS Coalition, which serves the 19 southernmost counties in the state. An AIDS holiday project has been conducted for 30 years. In Rockford, a high school senior scored a perfect ACT score. Maria Gardner-Lara caught up with him and his proud parents to learn about the secrets to his achievement. So how did Sinesio Morales prepare to get a perfect score on the ACT? I didn't. Perhaps it was his breakfast before the big test. A bowl of oatmeal, grits, perhaps scrambled eggs with ham, or some trending green superpower foods. I think I went to Dunkin' and I got coffee and I had a breakfast sandwich. A perfect score is rare, with less than 1% of all test takers earning a 36 score. I'm sitting with the Auburn High School senior and his parents in their dining room in their home in Rockford. Here's his father, Victor Morales, and his reaction when he got the news. I was like, uh, I've, oh my goodness, I didn't know how to act. <laughs> I was more excited than him. <laughs> Sinesio wants to be a surgeon, possibly focus on cardiothoracic. It's just like heart and lungs. His mother, Deverne Morales, is a retired nurse. We've been so very proud of him for working so hard to achieve these accomplishments, and we're very thankful for him. Sinesio says his mom's career in the health field influenced his interest in medicine. He has a mixed background, and while it used to be annoying to get prodding questions about his identity, he appreciates growing up experiencing both sides of his family. I love my culture. I love that I'm mixed. I love both the fact that I'm black and the fact that I'm Puerto Rican. 
His father is his loudest cheerleader. Morales says it's important that families celebrate their children's accomplishments. He says rather than focus on outcome, he encourages Sinesio's efforts. As long as you do your best, we don't care. We keep telling him that. Since we know what God gave you and the gifts that you have, we're like, okay, now let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> His achievements aren't just in school. He also excels in quiz bowl. He's been competing in the buzzer-based academic team competition since he was in middle school. He's a generalist on the team. I find it really enjoyable to be able to learn about multiple different topics and not just be confined to one thing. In a regional competition in November, he ranked the top individual scorer. But in this tournament, winners didn't get trophies. Instead, they choose a book from a collection of classics and acclaimed novels spread out on a table. And I chose The Kite Runner by Hosseini. He studies violin and is involved in his church where he often plays the drums and attends Bible study weekly. He also has a part-time job at a pizza restaurant. When he was younger, his whole family was regularly involved in outreach ministry at his church. That included supporting a homeless shelter and a women and children's crisis center. And I wanted him to see what the world is really about. Just because he's blessed to have two parents, a home, and everything that he needs doesn't mean that everybody else does, but that doesn't mean that he's better than them. Sinesio says those experiences helped him to understand the larger community. It's made me more passionate about my future because I've always wanted to help people because of it. In addition to taking part in activities outside of school, it's also college application season. There's um, a lot of moving parts to it all at once. To keep up with college and scholarship deadlines, he created a Google Sheet. He shared it with his dad, which he's not always sure was a good idea. And sometimes I get on his nerves, but I've been asking him, okay, so this week is, who, who, who is due? What is due? Uh, did you do it? I, when are you going to do it? Do we owe a fee? What do we have to do? Sinesio gives his father a smirk in recognition. He wants to study biomedical engineering and is applying to schools on the East and West Coast. Here's mom. I said, I'm going with you because it's hard for me to imagine him not being here. However, we have strong faith in the Lord that he'll keep them safe from hurting heart. Sinesio says he's less focused on the financial side of the process for now. His father says he's praying that scholarships and grants will help ease the financial burden. But he also started a college fund years ago. Morales owns a trucking company and drives a truck locally. He knows even if I have to work until the day I die for him to go to college, then I'll do what I have to do. These are the sacrifices we make as parents. With everything he is juggling, including his schoolwork, Sinesio says he also has time to hang out with his cousins and friends and play video games. Currently, it's a lot of Overwatch and Apex Legends. Also, he enjoys reading just for fun. Maria Gardner Lara. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Back in 2017, during the anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War I, we looked at an Illinoisan's effort to end the Great Conflict. Jane Addams today is remembered for her work at Chicago's Hull House and her efforts to settle immigrants in the city. But during the First World War, her peace efforts made her widely unpopular. Viewed by some as a living saint, her push against the war also led some to label her a traitor. Daisy Contreras spoke with Tara McClellan McAndrew, who wrote about Adam's struggles. We revisit that conversation. 
Uh, today, I think we think of Jane Addams as we associate her with Hull House here in Illinois, in Chicago specifically, where she helped um, many immigrant families acclimate to America. That's how we view her. And we view her, I think, in a very favorable way for the work she did in Chicago. But there was another part of her life that happened um, around World War I, where she was very involved with peace work. When World War I broke out, um, even a little bit before that, actually during the Spanish-American War, she started believing that instead of being at war, nations should try to mediate, to negotiate, and work things out that way. And when World War I broke out, she started forming peace organizations in Chicago. And she became very involved with a mo the peace movement during World War I to try to encourage nations to mediate instead of battle. And at first, America didn't want to get into World War I. And so being in a peace movement was all right. But as it got closer to America becoming, entering World War I, Americans' attitudes shifted. And they started to think that if we're going to enter this, then the patriotic thing to do is to back America and not keep saying that everybody needs to mediate this disagreement. And so her reputation changed. One thing in particular that led to the decline in her reputation was she went overseas to meet with other women from 12 different European countries, all of whom were trying to figure out how can we stop World War I, basically, and in fact prevent future wars. And while she was there, she spent six weeks in Europe. She also met with a lot of soldiers who were in hospitals and talked to them about their experiences in the battlefield. And when she came back to the States, she talked about her work over in Europe, both organizing for peace and talking with soldiers. And in one talk she gave at Carnegie Hall to other peace activists, she happened to mention, it sounds like it was almost an offhand comment, she happened to mention the soldiers' stories to her that they always knew when a battle was coming up because they'd be given um, alcohol to drink. And when the newspapers, certain newspapers got a hold of the story, they accused her of questioning the soldiers' um, bravery and instead impugning them and saying that they were cowards. Well, that began her fall from grace. And after all of her struggles and after all of those years, has her reputation been restored? The experts about Adams and the peace movements that I interviewed said it wasn't really one thing she did that um, restored her reputation. They think it was really a passage of time. It just took Americans time. Um, but finally, in the 1930s, after the Red Scare of the 20s, where she was branded a dangerous person and a traitor, she earned the Nobel Peace Prize. She was the first American woman to get a Nobel Peace Prize. And shortly before her death, um, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt hosted a large dinner in her honor. So before she died, she was finally seen as a wonderful woman again. And it's interesting that you also mentioned how newspapers in Illinois were not very kind to her during this time. But yet after her death, it was a completely different story. The Chicago Tribune 
lambasted her um, when, during the period where she was seen as a, a traitor for uh, advocating for peace when America had entered World War I. But yes, by the time of her death, um, perhaps that's the greatest proof that her reputation had been untarnished was that the Tribune itself lauded her, as did many, many papers around the country. And you should have read their coverage, newspapers around the country, you should have read their coverage of her before World War I, before she began her peace activism, which led to her fall from grace. She really was the most beloved, admired woman in America. And from the group of people that supported her, who ended up leaving her during the war? Well, Jane Addams was working for a lot of social reforms uh, before the war and even during the war. Things like suffrage for women, um, labor issues. She was working with labor groups to help them form unions. She was working on um, getting rid of child labor, etc. But one of her biggest issues, well, among many, was getting women's suffrage. Well, a lot of the women who were involved with women's suffrage became peace activists before the war. But after America entered the war, and even closely before it happened, they split. One of the um, historians I interviewed talked about this, and she said the suffrage movement was split because of World War I. Some of the women, like Adams, said we have to still remain peace activists. Entering the war is not the right way to do this. They should be mediating. But some of the other suffragists split off and did not advocate for peace. One of the reasons for some of them was they thought that if they basically stuck with President Wilson, he might grant them the vote. What do you think are some of the lessons that we can learn from Jane Addams and her experiences during World War One. I. I mean, we, we still remember her, as you've said, connected to Hull House and her work in Chicago. But what lessons can we get from this time in her life? Well, she never gave up. Even when she was working for peace and being lambasted for it um, during World War One, she was very ill for at least a couple of years and had surgery during that period. She was still overseeing Hull House. I don't know if she slept, frankly, <laughs> but she never gave up. One thing I really wanted to ask the experts was, well, do you think her piecework had any effect? Was it worth it, in other words? Because it's clear World War I was not stopped. The peace movement did not stop World War I. It did not stop future wars. So was it worth it? Did it have an effect? And what they said was some of what her peace groups advocated for, some of the specific points that they wanted to see happen were included in President Wilson's 14-point plan to end the war. That was a victory. In addition, the peace group that she helped start evolved into the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which continues today and does an amazing amount of social work around the world. And so you could really say that her work is still going on and doing good. Author Tara McClellan McAndrew wrote about Jane Addams and the First World War. You can find a link to her article at our website. It's at nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. 
Safe to Help is a confidential site that students in schools across Illinois use to report concerns. Jade Aubrey spoke with Samantha Kanish, who is the school safety policy advisor for Safe to Help Illinois. She explains how the site works, what students primarily use it for, and the support it's able to provide. Safe to Help Illinois is a free confidential school safety program that students can use in the absence of a trusted adult to share information on concerns such as bullying, mental health struggles, threats of violence, or other safety concerns in a safe environment. In addition to that 24-7 helpline, Safe to Help Illinois also offers self-help resources for students on our website, safetohelpillinois.com, as well as a mental health toolkit for educators. So is there an overall goal for Safe to Help? The goal is to prevent instances of bullying, um, mental health struggles, acts of violence, and create that safe learning environment that students deserve to have. And when was Safe to Help started? Safe to Help Illinois was birthed out of the Illinois Terrorism Task Force School Safety Working Group back in 2018 after the Parkland High School tragedy. We actually launched statewide October 20th of 2021. What got you involved with Safe to Help? As a mother of two daughters in school, I'm very passionate about making sure that my daughters are safe and school safety is just so important, especially with the tragedies that we have seen, not just this past school year, but in years previous. This was my part in trying to serve and give back and to help make sure that students didn't make decisions they couldn't come back from, that they didn't feel like they were hopeless and that the only way out was maybe through self-harm or through suicide. I'm really passionate about what I do, and I am really blessed to be able to serve at this capacity. And how many schools in Illinois use the hotline if you have a number? Safe to Help Illinois is available to all schools in Illinois, K-12, through public, private, charter, contract, it doesn't matter. We ask that schools actually provide contacts for us to reach out in the event a report is made. However, if we receive a critical life safety report, each and every one of those are actually acted upon and forwarded on to the appropriate authorities to act upon them. What's the main reason that students use Safe to Help? The number one is bullying, followed by suicidal ideation as reported by another student. We do see that students care about their friends and they do see concerning behaviors and they want to help. And so this program is a safe way for them to do so. To round out the top three, we have seen drugs, which does include vaping in that category. But that really doesn't show everything that we have seen. We have seen everything from vandalism, sexual assault, fighting, cyberbullying, alcohol use, eating disorders, those sorts of things. They've all come through this helpline. Just those top three really just scratches the surface. There's a lot that have been impacting our students, especially now this past school year where students returned back and they have dealt with that social isolation. And so now they're trying to come back into the classroom and they need those supports. So we are seeing some of these students have developed unhealthy coping skills. There was a recent mental health survey for the youth that identified 42% of students actually had developed unhealthy coping skills. That includes drugs, alcohol, and eating disorders, just to name a few in that survey. 
Do you think it's taken time for young people to get more comfortable with reporting these concerns? I can imagine that some people might have reservations about reporting their friend and maybe getting their friend in trouble. You know, with any new helpline, the main thing that students want to know is who am I talking to? We have a group of 24 7, 365. We have adults available 3 a.m. on a holiday during summer break that are there, that are highly trained with youth mental health first aid. Some have previous background and experience working in social work and the mental health professions. They really do care about the students. I think right there is trying to get students to understand that they are talking to adults that really do care and that they're not talking directly to law enforcement. They're really talking to individuals that are trained that want to talk to them back and forth, converse. They're not dealing with chatbots. There is a live human being on the other end that actually cares and wants to know more about what is going on with them. And going off of that, I think that it's important to add that Safe to Help is a confidential hotline. So why do you think that that aspect is so important? And what does that mean? That means students don't have to tell us who they are, unless, of course, they're getting help for themselves. The majority of, of information that comes through the helpline are students letting us know what is going on with their friends. They're trying to get help for them. And so it's important for us to obviously know the name of their friend so that that friend can get help. But we don't need to know the name of the student that is providing the information. Gotcha. And how exactly does it work when a tip is received? So essentially, when a student reaches out through one of the five ways to make a report, the most popular have been through text message, Safe2, our website, and the mobile app. Our call center receives that immediately as it's sent. Typically, what is needed is the who, what, when, where. So essentially, who needs help? What happened? Has a trusted adult been informed previously? Where did it happen? And then from there, it is connected with trusted adults at the school and or district level so that they can provide either additional care or address the concern head on, especially when we're seeing bullying as a number one report through the helpline. That's Samantha Kenish, who is the School Safety Policy Advisor for Safe to Help Illinois. There is a free app available. You can find out more at our website. And we're out of time for this episode of Statewide. Be sure to join us next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Our website address is nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. You can also find all of our episodes there, and our weekly podcast is available through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.